Turn with me to Judges chapter 1. Today, we're going to begin a six-week study of the book of Judges. And if you like movies like Braveheart or Gladiator, anybody like Braveheart or Gladiator out there? Oh, come on. If you like anything or any movie with an epic battle scene, you would love the book of Judges. In fact, uh, the Lawfulbinds are actually headed out to Scotland tomorrow. And, uh, and I, I gave you, maybe you can tell me how my Scottish is, but I was telling Mary, Mary, this is going to be a good trip because when you're lying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for just one chance to go back to Scotland and tell the English that they may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. Yeah. I'm, you can tell I've, I've seen that movie just a few times. You know, as a young man, I really wanted to become an actor and a director. In fact, that's what I thought I was going to do uh, instead of being a pastor. And, and I thought if I ever became a director, I would make a movie about the book of Judges because it is one of the most action-packed books in the Bible. It's one of the bloodiest rated R books in the Bible. And now that I'm older, I understand that the book of Judges is actually one of the saddest books in the Bible. You know, in this moment of Israel's history, the people of God, they'd finally settled into the promised land after centuries of waiting. They were free for the first time and had an opportunity to bless the nations around them. But instead of growing more passionate and committed to God, the people found their hearts wandering away time and time again. And this study of the book of Judges is going to be a little bit different. Instead of diving into the different characters that we see in the book of Judges, there's 12 judges in the book of Judges. And instead of diving in to all 12 characters and kind of doing a character study, uh, we're going to look at the book of Judges from a 30,000-foot view to discuss one of the central themes of the book of Judges. And it is the theme of spiritual entropy. Now, entropy is the idea that over time, things begin to naturally move towards disorder and chaos unless it's intentionally addressed. Now, let me ask you, what would your backyard look like if you never pulled the weeds? What would your house look like if you never picked up in your house? Even our relationships begin to fall apart if we are not intentional, if we do not address our relationships, if we, are, if we do not put energy and time and effort into our relationships. Even our, our relationships digress in this process of entropy towards chaos and, and, and disorder. And the people of Israel discovered that their relationship with God and their own lives were at serious risk of entropy. And they failed to exert the energy needed to keep their faith strong and their spiritual fires burning bright. So over the coming weeks, we're going to learn from the lessons of Judges and talk about eight signs of spiritual entropy and how to intercept those tendencies to, uh, in order to, to make sure that our faith does not grow cold. But first, before we uh, begin to read, let's pray together and ask the Lord to open up our hearts. Jesus We want to learn from your word. We want your scripture to jump out at us. And Lord, we don't want to walk away here unchanged. Lord, I pray that every single person would would receive from this message today. That they would ask themselves, what is it that you're asking me to do, God? What is it that you want me to do? Amen. 
we all have moments in life when we come to a crossroad. And in these critical moments, we can choose to follow God or follow our own desires. And that the problem is, is that at many times, we don't recognize these moments as critical moments. And many times there's, there's crossroads in our lives. There's decisions that we come to in life. And we don't see them as critical moments because sometimes these crossroads come in seasons of prosperity and abundance when things are going good. And we don't recognize that even in those moments of prosperity, when things are all going right and according to our plans, the way that we want them, these are critical moments. And Israel is in one of these critical moments. Like I said, for the first time in history, after centuries of waiting, we meet a generation of human beings who have the opportunity to live freely under the direct rule of God. They've been delivered from Egypt. The people of God have survived the wilderness. They've survived 40 years wandering in the wilderness. They've conquered their enemies. In the book of Joshua, they, they went throughout the land of Canaan, and they conquered Jericho, and they conquered the different Canaanites that lived in the land. And now they have finally made it to the promised land. And they didn't have a king, but God himself was ruling over Israel. It was a good deal. It was a good setup. Every nation looked at Israel and knew that that is not somebody we want to mess with. Because when we see the ark of God in their camp and we see a pillar of fire coming down from heaven and resting upon the ark, we know that something is in the camp of Israel that we don't want to mess with. And they would stay their distance. And the enemies of God would fear the people of Israel. God was their protector, their provider, their king, the one who saved them from Egypt. He ruled over Israel. They had a good deal. It was a good situation. See, we often see how critical moments, uh, we often see uh, critical moments when we're in seasons of struggle But we must learn to recognize the importance of decisions after we step into prosperity and abundance. When things are going well, we cannot let our guards down in those seasons because that is when the enemy deceives us and makes us think that we don't need God. That things are going well. I'm taking care of myself. I've got this under control. When you're in a season of struggle, what happens? You're crying out to God, right? God, I need you. I need you to come in. I need healing in my family. I need the finances to, to, to line up. God, I just, I need your provision. I need your protection. I need you to take away fear. But when we're in seasons of prosperity and things are going well, this is us in America, church. This is us. We live in a, in a first world, very blessed, very fortunate, prosperous country. And we don't often recognize critical moments when they come up. In the book of Joshua, we read about what is called the Holy War on Israel's, uh, or, or Israel's conquest of Canaan. And, and this is a, it's a bloody part of Scripture. In fact, it's a really difficult part of Scripture. And, and it's a mess. And God essentially tells Israel to move into Canaan, to move into the promised land, and to eradicate the people of Canaan wherever they stepped foot. Wherever Israel went, they were supposed to eradicate the people of Canaan. And you read this, and people struggle with a God that would command violence, that would tell Israel to move into the land and, 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 and kill everything. Don't let, don't let anything live. This is a hard part of Scripture, but there's a very intentional, there's a very specific reason why God was asking his people to do this. God didn't want Israel bringing the corruption and idolatry of the Canaanites into Israel's culture. They were supposed to be a people set apart for God, 
And so we're going to read in Judges 1, starting at verse 27, what happens next. Verse 27, it says, But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor, I'm going to butcher these words, or Eblim, or that M word, Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. And when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites. And it goes on and on and on, all the way down to verse 36 to say that none of the tribes of Israel did what they were commanded to do, and they did not fully drive out the Canaanites from the land. This is important. The people of God did not fully eliminate the Canaanites. And over the years... Israel, you can turn off the projector. I can tell this is going to be, is, is it distracting? Are you good? Shake your head at me if you're good. Okay, okay. Just stay with me. Stay with me. If get, the people of God, they did not fully eliminate the Canaanites. And over the years, Israelites married Canaanites. They adopted their idol worship and other pagan practices. So the first sign of spiritual entropy There's eight of them that we're going to talk about in this series. But the first one of these eight that we're going to talk about today, I'm going to give you two today. The first one is that we do not fully address the remaining sin in our lives after receiving Jesus. And it leads to chaos and disorder if it's left unattended. What What did Israel do instead of eliminating the Canaanites? Instead of wiping them out, the Bible says that they put them into forced labor. And the implication here is there are slaves. What harm can they do, right? We've got this under control. I know God said to completely to wipe them out, but hey, they're working for us now. And so it's kind of this win-win situation. They get to live and we get some servants. And don't we often do this in our lives when it comes to sin is when an addiction or a pattern or a behavior or something that God wants us to completely eliminate, we look at him and say, well, we got this under control. I've got this under control, God. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to, I'm going to surround myself with people who pat me on the back and make me feel good. I've got this under control. But we never completely eradicate and eliminate the things in our life that God is trying to fully weed out. Instead of bringing our sin into the light so it can be eliminated, many of us pretend as though we have it under control. And we never really deal with it. And as a, as a result of unaddressed sin, we experience this thing called the vicious cycle of spiritual entropy. And this is the cycle that we see repeated 12 times in the book of Judges. This happens over and over again throughout the book of Judges. It's, and, and I'm going to describe this cycle. The cycle always begins with peace. When Joshua and the people come into the land, there's a time of peace and prosperity. Things are going great. They're thankful to God, and they hold fast to him. How many of you have experienced seasons of peace before? Thank God for seasons of peace. But those are not seasons where we let our guards down. And those are not seasons where we stop pursuing him, and we put our Bibles on the shelf and let them collect dust. Oftentimes, that's what we do. 
in seasons of prosperity. We forget about God. We forget about our time spent with him. We forget about passionate worship. We forget about pursuing a relationship with God in seasons of peace. And this is what Israel does. The next cycle, the next phase of the cycle is they go from peace to complacency. The hearts of people begin to grow cold. They get used to the goodness of what God has given them. They no longer have a vision to be a nation that betters the world, but they have a dream of becoming a nation for themselves. And as their hearts grow complacent, their eyes wander away from God and towards idols and false gods and the people around them. As we grow complacent, And as we believe, we begin to believe that things are going well, I don't really need God. We begin to gravitate towards spending more times with Netflix and Hulu than we do reading our Bibles. And we begin to gravitate towards spending more time doing this activity or or doing a hobby that we love. And we forget about how important it is to continually pursue a relationship with God. The next cycle, we go from peace to complacency. The next part is they fall into sin. They begin to compromise. Their sinful hearts lead to wicked actions and they commit idolatry. The people that they hadn't driven out completely worship false gods. And so they begin to enter into all kinds of immorality, just like the Canaanites that they failed to drive out. And this is what happens in our life as we become complacent. We fall into sin. And after sin, the next part, it it comes pain. And the Israelites, they learn that sin brings pain. Even the sin that looks the most attractive and seems safe. They are attacked by enemy nations because, and because they have rejected God, God isn't there to defend them. And these invading people oppress the people of God and they bring untold pain and sorrow into the lives of God's people. And each of these oppressions, they last for years. Sometimes if you read the book of Judges, some of them last for two decades. And then the finally, finally, the people of God hit rock bottom. And what, they, what do they do when they experience so much pain? Is they cry out to God, save us, God. It's the next part of the cycle. God, save us. Oftentimes, people don't often change until the pain of continuing to live the way you're living is greater than the pain that it costs to change. That oftentimes, people wait until it's easier to change than it is to stay living how I'm living. But God doesn't want us to wait that long. He doesn't want you to wait to hit rock bottom. He wants you to have soft hearts. He wants us to have soft, moldable hearts and say, God, I want you now. Even when things are going well, I want you now. And the people, they they hit rock bottom. And they cry out to God. They say, God, save us. Get us out of this mess. We don't want this anymore. And what does God do? God sends a judge to deliver the people. God raises up a leader who helps the people fight off their oppressors. And over time, the enemies flee and the hearts of the people turn back to God for a time. When a judge uh, well, what, let, me, let me talk briefly about what is a judge in the Bible, because oftentimes when we think of judge, we think of somebody with a gavel and, and a robe sitting in a courthouse. That is not what the Bible describes as a judge. When the Bible uh, talks about a judge in this book, it's referring to three primary roles. A judge for, over Israel was somebody who was a political leader over Israel. That was their first role. 
Their second role was that they were a military deliverer. The judge that God would send to Israel would help drive out the bad guys from the land and give the people their freedom back. So they were a political leader. They were a military deliverer. And third, they were an agent of God's power. God used judges mightily in the Bible. And so a judge is someone who is an agent of God's power. So God would send a judge, and the people would turn back to God for a time. And for as long as that judge was alive, the people experienced peace again. But once again, the judge would die, and the people fall back into complacency, and the whole cycle repeats again. Generation after generation falls into the same patterns. And this was the time of the judges. They didn't learn from their mistakes. They didn't, they didn't, their mothers and fathers did not tell them what had happened before, and they fall into the same cycle of spiritual entropy. When will they learn? Come on, Israel, get your stuff together. We read the Bible, and we go, what is wrong with you? You know, my daughter, my daughter Vivian, she's two, and when I put her on the counter, sometimes she likes to help me make lunch, and I put her on the counter one time, and I, 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 I made a real delicious dad meal. It was a frozen pizza. And I put this frozen pizza in the microwave oven, and she was sitting too close to it, and she accidentally touched the hot metal on the oven, and she burnt her finger. And now when Vivian gets on the counter, she avoids the microwave oven. If I put her close to it, she's scooting away from it, trying to get away from the microwave oven. She learned from her mistakes. Now, can you imagine if she came back time and time again and just touched the oven over and over again? Just let's see what happens. Let's, let's just see if, if, if we have a different result this time. That would be unthinkable. Yet, this is exactly what Israel does. And each time that they are delivered, they turn back to their old ways of idolatry, and the cycle repeats. Now, before we begin to judge the Israelites too harshly, we all need to take a look in the mirror. Because the cycle of spiritual entropy, this moving away from God into spiritual disorder, is something that every believer faces almost naturally. We naturally gravitate towards disorder and chaos if we do not intentionally pursue a relationship with God. And unless we identify the signs and fight against it, it will creep back into our lives. Ask yourself if you can identify a pattern of falling into the same sinful actions over and over. And even after we repent and confess our sins, we find ourselves right back in the middle of it. And we know exactly what Paul is talking about when he's writing to the churches in the New Testament. He says, I do what I don't want to do. I end up doing what I don't want to do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing it. And we go, Paul, we can relate. We know exactly what you're talking about. There's this cycle that we just fall into. I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. What about seasons of peace and prosperity? Do you give thanks to God for how he's blessed you and use your blessing to bless others? Or do you become self-seeking and slowly turn your heart away from God and toward material things and attribute that blessing to your own hard work? Oftentimes we experience the blessing of God and we go, look what I did. Have you seen my bank account? Have you seen my house? Have you seen my children? They're amazing. I did that. I did that. Yeah, okay, God helped a little bit, but I did that. 
And we attribute God's blessing to ourselves and our own hard work. So how do we intercept this problem? This, this sign of spiritual entropy that, that we do not fully eliminate the sin in our lives. Well, the first thing that we do is we ask God to reveal any sin that is left in our hearts. You have to ask God to reveal any sin that is left in your hearts. Psalm 139 says, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is writing for God to search his heart for the things that he doesn't even see or know about. There's, there, all of us have sin in our life that we know about, Right? If I was to ask you, what do you struggle with? You could tell me immediately, I know what I struggle with. This is what I struggle with. But David's asking God to do something else. God, show me the things that I don't even know are there. The people that I haven't fully driven out. The things in my life that I haven't fully driven out. Maybe I think I've got them under control. I need you to search my heart, God, and show me those things. It's a difficult prayer. That is a bold prayer to pray. Because God will do that. And then you're left with a decision, a hard decision, to continue following God into the steps of removing those things from your life. The second thing that we do is we confess our sins to one another, to fully eliminate sin in our life. James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If you're like me and you grew up in the church, oftentimes... I've tricked myself into thinking, I don't need to talk to anybody about this because I have a relationship with God. And he is my high priest. He is the one that I can talk to him myself. So if I confess my sins to him and I ask his forgiveness and he forgives me, then it's done. And I don't need to tell anybody about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue trying harder. I'm going to continue reading my Bible and coming to church. I'm going to continue to try to do the work to eradicate this because I, I, I told God about it, and that's good enough. But not even God believes that. James 5, James 5 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If you want to be freed from addiction, if you want to be healed, if you want God to move in your life, there has to be an element of telling people what's going on. And our culture today does not like this. We live in this independent, look at me, I'm so great, I'm going to post it on Instagram so you can see how great I am culture. And when you come to somebody and you say, I am not perfect, I am struggling here, I'm falling into sin over and over again, and I just need freedom. This is a, we've made this super hard in our, in our church culture to do because we judge each other. We hear somebody confesses their sin. Oh, my goodness, I didn't know that about you. I'm keeping my kids away from you. I'm keeping this person away. No, and we, we try to, we judge each other. But look in the mirror. You have the same things going on. We all have the same things going on. If we stopped pretending that we were perfect and admitted that we need help and asked each other for prayer and confessed our sins to one another, how healthy would the church look? How much healing would we experience? How much freedom would we experience? I love what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Then he says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. Everything that is exposed, everything that is brought into the light, everything that is illuminated becomes light. What does that mean? It means God can take your sin, your shame, the things that you do in secret, and if you bring them into the light and you confess them and you tell God what's going on, he can redeem those things. He can redeem those things. He'll forgive you for those things. You will experience healing and freedom when we bring our darkness into the light because the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he shows grace to the humble. Those of us who are saying, I'm not telling anybody what I've done. I'm not telling, I'm not sharing this with anybody. God opposes that proud mentality, that proud behavior. God opposes that. And if you don't bring it into the light, God will. It will be brought into the light. It will be exposed. So what happens next? Judges chapter 2. Turn with me. Flip the page to the next chapter. Judges chapter 2. We're going to move into the second sign of spiritual entropy. But let's read first, starting with verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Well done, Joshua. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timtha Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Verse 10. After that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the balls, and they forsook the Lord and God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods, the peoples all around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And in anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into their hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as his, just that he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of their hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Did you catch what verse 10 said? It says, after that, a whole genera- after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up, and they did not know what God had done for Israel. They did not know who he was or what he had done for Israel. This second sign of spiritual entropy, I believe, is a very important one for this morning. 
is that we do not passionately and consistently impart the faith to the next generation. If we fail to do that, if we fail to pass on our faith to the next generation, then the world will grow farther and farther away from God and more towards chaos and disorder. After all of the miracles, after all the battles won, after all the heavenly provision, after all the powerful revelations of God's presence, this generation forgets to tell their children about the faith. How could this happen? In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we saw what was on God's heart and how important it was for them to pass it on. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And then he says, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk alongside the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, on your gates. He says, do not forget what I've done for you. Tell your children. Talk about it when you sit together at the table for dinner. Talk about it together. Tell your kids what I have done. Do not forget my goodness. So how does a whole generation grow and never learn about what God has done for the generation before them? It's hard to imagine, but what was true for Israel was true for a vast part of Europe and is true for America today. Europe was once a place of spirit-filled reformation and revival, and it's since grown cold to the gospel. It was once covered with churches filled with passionate worshipers who burned with love for Jesus. And now just a few generations later, these churches are empty and they become museums and tourist attractions. There's little pockets of revival coming up in Europe, but for the most part as a nation, as, as a continent, as a continent, Europe has grown cold to the gospel. And America has followed suit. Our nation was born because of its desire to have religious freedom. And in the 1950s, 60% of Americans attended church and claimed to have faith. Now Western culture is considered post-Christian, and faith in Jesus is looked down on by the majority. We live in a country, in a nation that has grown cold to the gospel. It's grown cold to the faith. Spiritual entropy doesn't begin with a whole generation wandering from God. It begins with a generation who is not passionate enough to inspire their children to seek the face of God. It doesn't begin with a generation that refuses to love Jesus. It starts with parents and grandparents who have grown complacent in their faith. Parents and grandparents who experience blessing and prosperity and think, I don't need God anymore. I'm doing fine on my own. And they forget about the things that informed their faith when they grew up, when they were raised. They forget about what spoke to their heart and what God did in their life. And they don't share that with their kids or with their, grand, with their grandkids. And those kids grow up not knowing who Jesus is and unaware of what he did in your life because you've never told him. So how do we intercept this problem? It's not too late. 
We can stop the cycle of entropy. We can stop the cycle. God celebrates when faith is entrusted to the next generation. Look at this powerful example in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. I love this. Paul's writing to Timothy, and Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Uh, Then he says this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Paul's writing to Timothy going, I saw that faith in your grandmother Lois. We got a Lois in the room right now. I saw your faith in your mother Eunice, and now I see the faith in you, Timothy. And Paul celebrates it. God celebrates when the faith is passed down to the next generation. I celebrate. One of the things that brought me to this church was Pastor Rory before me. All of his kids love the Lord and serve Jesus faithfully. I'm actually good friends with one of, one of Rory's sons. He, he pastors, he's a youth pastor in Salem, Oregon. And I was only about an hour away, so we did a lot of youth ministry together. And I love his son, Jonathan. He's one of the most amazing young men. Some of you here, you know who Jonathan is. You went to high school with him and stuff. Jonathan's just amazing. And, and I look at the faith that, that Rory and Debbie had and how they passed on the faith to their kids. And I go, man, that is the dream. That is what I want. I want my kids all to love the Lord and serve him faithfully. We must have a deep commitment to pass on the torch of faith to the next generation with grace, consistency, and passion. That is how we stop the cycle, is we have to pass the torch of faith to the next generation. Parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, all who have spiritual responsibility for children should make decisions about what will be priority in their lives and their schedules. What's going to be a priority? Spiritual growth, connecting in the community of the church, and worship, worship experiences, they need to be a priority. These things need to be a priority. My wife and I, we've made a commitment to ourselves that before our kids leave the house, every one of our kids will have experienced a mission trip will have been to a summer camp or a worship-filled youth conference. And coming to church will always be a priority on Sundays. We want our kids to know that this is a part of who we are as followers of Jesus, that the community of faith, that worshiping Jesus with a community of faith is our top priority. We want this to be ingrained into them. And we will not allow our kids to play sports if their games happen on Sundays. I'm sorry. So often I see parents make Sunday sports a priority over church. And their kids threaten to quit playing this. Well, I'm tired playing baseball. I don't want to play soccer anymore. And what does dad do? You made a commitment, son. You're going to stick this out. I want you to stick it out for the rest of the year. Next year you can determine whether or not you want to play again. You've got to stick it out. But what happens when the kids go, I don't want to go to church. Well, I guess we don't have to go to church today. Maybe, maybe you guys can stay home, or I'll stay home with you. And Yeah, we don't have to go to church today. I see this happen all the time. What are we imparting to our children? What are we, what are we passing to the next generation? Is the faith going to die with you? Or is it going to live on in, in the next generation? 
If we want to avoid spiritual entropy, we must do all we can to be sure our children and grandchildren are growing in their faith. So the question is, while I take part in one of the greatest tasks of sharing the faith with those who follow after me, will I share my faith? Will I tell them what God did in my life? Will I, sh- will I share stories of when God spoke to me? Will I, will I tell them sto- the, the time that I said yes to Jesus? Will I share that with my kids and with my grandkids? Will I tell them what happened when I went on this missions trip or when this speaker came or when I read my Bible this one day and the Lord spoke to my heart or when I was worshiping and I heard the Lord whisper, will I tell those things to my kids? Because you want that faith to live on in them. You want that, you, you want your ceiling to become their floor, for them to stand on your shoulders and go even farther in their faith and go and pursue the things of God even more than you did. You want to see them succeed and for God to use our future generation more mightily than he's using us. So as we conclude today, I want to do a couple of things. First off, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone in the room who serves our children in this church. Anybody who, uh, anybody who uh, helps in the kids' ministry, if you hold babies and you're, you're rocking babies or you're teaching curriculum, if that's you, would you, I know this is a lot, but would you stand up? Joy's in the back going, don't make me stand up. Stand up, Joy. Come on. If you serve our kids, stand up. Kathy, stand up. You serve our kids. Come on, kids or youth. Uh, Listen to me. Stay standing. I want you to know how important your job is, how important this task is, that we do not take this for granted. I'm so thankful that we have people on our team who love Jesus and who are going to share that. I've got four kids right now in youth, in, in the ministry here. I've got four kids who are in those rooms, and I want them to be able to come back and tell me about the Bible. I want them to, to be hungry and passionate, and you are helping do that. So I thank you. Can we just say thank you to these people who are helping? Thank you. Here's another thing I want to do. If you are a parent with young children in your household, you stand up. Parent with, parents with young kids. If you have parents or if you have kids still living in your home, stand up. You have one of the greatest challenges and one of the most important tasks to tell your kids about Jesus, to tell your kids about what he's done. And this is something that we don't, it it doesn't come naturally. You have to be intentional about it. You have to intentionally set aside time to tell them about Jesus, to read the Bible with them, to share the faith with them. It is something that doesn't come naturally, but it's something that every one of our children desperately needs if we're going to carry the faith onto the next generation. And so stay standing. I just want to pray over you. And I want to, I want to thank God for what, what he's doing in the lives of your children and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you with even more power. So, Father, we, we love you, and we thank you, God, for these parents. God, we thank you for the fruit that they are bearing. We thank you, God, that... that you have given them, these children, to steward, that these are not our kids. They're your kids, and you've assigned us to take care of them 
and to share the faith with them. So, Father, thank you for that gift. Thank you for trusting us to do that. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill every single one of these parents with patience, with a commitment to your word. Lord, with a grace and with a wisdom to be able to share. And Lord, not to be perfect, not to try to have all the right words or have the answers to all the questions. We don't know all those things. But to be honest and say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that question, but let's read the Bible. Let's find out together. Let's pursue this together. Lord, I pray that the children in these homes would look at their parents and not see perfection, but they would see the pursuit they would see that their parents and their, their, their caregivers, their grandparents, are running after you, and it would inspire them to do the same thing. Father, we love you. Lord, we take control of our households as the spiritual leaders of our households, and we charge ourselves with the commission to make disciples first in our homes. Before we go outside, our, our children are the first disciples that we make. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.